We're going to be in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. We're reading from the NIV. You can follow the words on the screen, or you can open your Bibles, your physical Bibles, or on your phone. Um, this is Galatians 5, 16 through 26. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing how God is starting to answer prayers. You know, we're praying to be a global missionary community like the old school churches that have, you know, a wall of pictures of missionaries all around the world. So we've got Lily at Uganda. We've got Sophia taking the team to uh, Malawi. I think we've got a group of kids coming up from crew going to Guatemala next week. Is that right? Is that next week? Yeah. We've got Zach and Jade going to Yukaipa, which is in the United States. That's not in Africa. <laughs> it's just, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it's pretty awesome to see how the Spirit is working through y'all and your generosity and our prayers. It's just absolutely phenomenal. So let's pray. Look away from the flesh. Look away or look towards the spirit. Look away from the flesh. Look towards the spirit. That's the entire month of February. We're fasting through February. There's trainings going on in our community groups uh, around tables as our groups are now fasting through the month of February. And uh, it's just a beautiful season to be part of God's people and loving Jesus. Father, we come before you now in this time to respond to you and to the teachings of these texts. These words that are on pages or even in our phones, but thousands of years old, they echo and reverberate across history and they have shaped Western society and thought because these words, fully human, are also indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God himself gave us these words to tend to us and to care for us to meet our desires and our needs. And we, Lord, fallen and deceived, hear your word and do not believe. But I ask that this day you would grant the gift of grace and mercy and encounter and transformation in your word that each of these souls you've gathered here would be spoken to specifically and walk away from this Sunday morning one step further into the kingdom of God and away from the world one step further into their walk in the spirit and away from the flesh, one step closer to Jesus and away from the devil. We worship you this morning and we love you with everything that we have. May this listening to this sermon and the teaching of this sermon be an act of devoted worship. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Uh, it was 1886, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, just took society by storm, receiving critical accolades, tremendous commercial success at the time. Now, Stevenson himself was intrigued with the burgeoning disciplines of psychology and psychoanalysis. And in particular, what Stevenson was struck by was the way in which these fields were exploring the dual and the conflicted nature of our human psyche. Now, Dr. Jekyll, we mostly know the story, very famous story, Dr. Jekyll he was a self-controlled and gentle and good man, but he discovered a way to indulge his darker side by creating a potion that would transform him into Mr. Hyde. Now, Hyde, of course, was violent, 
perverted, impulsive, reckless. And readers at the time found Dr. Jekyll to be a character that they secretly identified with. Like themselves, Jekyll's apparent virtues were simultaneously in conflict with an internal set of vices that he kept well camouflaged. Now, at first, as the story goes, Dr. Jekyll delighted. He loved indulging in his baser behavior through Mr. Hyde. But eventually, the power and the patterns of Mr. Hyde consumed Dr. Jekyll. And he no longer had any control of the transformations, when they would take place, and what Hyde would do afterwards. The story tragically ends with Dr. Jekyll, spoiler alert, <laughs> taking his own life, suicide in order to rid the world of the dangerous and reckless and impulsive Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is that tragic, all-too-true lesson on the unavoidable destruction of unchecked desires. Now, today, 200 years later or so, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, they live on in our collective imagination and experience. We moderns, we drink a cocktail of transformative potions every single day, we call them hormones, stress, busyness, the boss, the spouse, the finances, politics, past and present traumas, innumerable hairpin triggers pulled continually by our current social environment. Now, while this room here collectively represents that general cultural category of what we call being a good person, we all have that darker hidden side that if we are brutally honest with ourselves, we honestly, sometimes we wish that we could just release all constraints on it and let it rip. <laughs> For Jesus's people, the apprentice of Jesus, this Jekyll and Hyde dichotomy, it is even more pronounced because Christian theology teaches that an entirely new creation, a whole new being has been created by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit by faith in our bodies. A Christian's deepest desires Note, I said, our deepest desires. Underneath all the layers of our desires, a Christian's deepest desires have now been realigned with God's desires. But the inertia of our life before Jesus, our memories, our patterns, our perspectives, our habits, our beliefs, our former behaviors, and something the Bible calls inborn sin in our flesh, in our bodies, not only resists this new life, but is actually hostile, Paul tells us, towards all that God intends. There's the civil war between old creation and new creation. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, spirit and flesh. Paul used that technical term, sarks, translated as flesh into our English Bibles. Flesh is the technical shorthand for the corrupted part of our being that lives on in rebellion against God, even though we don't want it to. We all this morning are wrestling with a Mr. Hyde within us, that impulsive, reckless, lusty, perverted, deceptive part of us. And dear friends, that part of us requires earnest resistance on our part. The king came and resisted the temptation to yield to that corrupted part, though Jesus was not corrupted. He, he resisted temptation to the point of sweating blood. That was the degree to which he fought against the temptation to give in to these lusty, impulsive desires, to disobey God. And we are to intentionally train our bodies in this new way of life. Much more on that next week and the week following. So that's our topic at hand for the morning. We're going to take a deep dive into the conflict between flesh and spirit. Now, just a heads up. Hyde was a bad, bad dude. And when we take a deep, long look at our flesh, it is not fun to look at. We have all, unconsciously and consciously, spent our lives camouflaging and covering up and keeping that part of ourselves hidden, even from our own conscious mind sometimes. But darkness is always overcome by light. In every case throughout the Christian story, light penetrates darkness and overcomes so we got to take a look at it. Now, the ancients had a concept called duplex cognitio dei. Duplex cognitio dei. That's just Latin for double knowledge of God and self. All the great sages of Christian history believed that we must know ourselves to know God. We need to know both our virtuous selves, our righteous selves, our self-controlled selves, and we need to be fully aware of our driven darker side, the vice-driven side of us. Why? so that we can present 
our whole self, virtuous and vice-driven, to God in surrender. We present the whole of our being, light and dark, to God in surrender. Remember from last week, God loves our fleshy bodies. That statement makes me squirm, but it's so theologically true. God loves our fleshy bodies. He loves our broken beliefs and intends to heal them. He loves our memories and patterns because our bodies are us, ensouled bodies, embodied spirits. That's what we are. He loves the whole of us, and only as light penetrates the dark will we be transformed for life in the kingdom of the heavens, as Jesus said. Turn from the world, turn to the kingdom of God. So today's session is an invitation to radical obedience. As Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. So we explore our interior lives for the sake of being loved. And in that love, we surrender to the transforming power of God's indwelling presence. So we're just going to work through our text this morning. Galatians chapter 5, Lex read it for us. I'll read again, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires. That word desire is our focal point for the morning. The desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, a civil war of soul and spirit and flesh and body and mind, so that you are not to do whatever you want to do. So Paul says the theater of war, where this conflict takes place, this war between flesh and spirit exists in the realm of our desires, what we want. A couple of thoughts on desires to set up the whole morning. Number one, write this down if you're taking notes. Desire is a God-given and good thing. Our desires this morning, loved ones, are good, God-given things that we cannot deny. We all have desires because God designed us with desires. As living beings, God created us with these wants, these needs, these desires. We are created limited and dependent and needy, and that is what it is to be human. And so desire, desire is the God-given feeling or drive or energy to have those needs met. As limited, dependent creatures, our desires are energized by our physical needs. We need food and water and shelter and protection. Our desires drive us towards those things. By emotional and relational needs, we need companionship and intimacy and acceptance and affirmation. Our desires draw us to those things, energize us to pursue those things. And as dependent, God-created creatures, we have spiritual needs. We have needs for meaning and transcendence and purpose and beauty and worship and devotion. Our desires energize us, move us towards meeting those needs. As psychologist Chip Dodd says, we are born looking for someone looking for us. What Dodd means by that is we are born desiring all of our needs to be met and our needs can only be met by another outside of us. Desire is God-given and a good thing. Got it, class? Number two, desire apart from God is disordered. Desire apart from God is disordered. The Bible tells us this problem of being born in Adam, Adam, dirt being, who committed the first sin, he and Eve. We are born in them, and we have this spiritual heritage of inborn sin. Therefore, we are born looking for the wrong things to meet our desires, a disordered desire. Our conflict, friends, is not with desire per se. We desire, and we must desire. It is with disordered desires. The flesh's desire is focused on getting what we think we need in the wrong way, or it's focused on the completely wrong thing in total, and this is why Paul says the Spirit realigns our desires and realigns our deepest needs with God. And then we have this flesh and spirit categorical difference of desire. Theologian Tom Wright explains it this way. In Paul, flesh and spirit are in opposition to each other. This isn't a matter of the material world against the non-material world. 
it is rather a matter of where your true identity lies, where your deepest motivation comes from, and where the power or the energy or the desire that rules your life is really found. The flesh, in its disordered desire, itself defines. I will define who I am myself. The flesh tends to compete with others, and the, ten- the flesh runs on its own power, on its own ability, on its own ingenuity. The spirit, in contrast to that, the spirit desires to define our identity in relationship to God. We don't define who we are. We define who we are by the spirit aligning us with God as loved children. The spirit actually desires to work in concert with others, unifying us in harmony to form a loving community rather than in competition with each other. And the Holy Spirit is an objective, as we'll learn next week, unchanging, objective, no matter what we feel or think, outside of us, outside of ourselves. The Holy Spirit is a power outside of ourselves that takes up residence in our subjective being. Now, here's the problem. You would think if God indwelt us that all of a sudden all of our desires, our deepest longings would be met in God. We would wake up as Christians and say, I'm born again. I'm free. Hallelujah. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The flesh is so terribly convincing. Those broken patterns and memories, the inertia of living like Hyde for so long is so terribly convincing. Our fleshy desires, let's call them dreams, definitions, hopes, of self, those desires feel absolutely true and more real than anything else. Now, of course, this goes back to Genesis 1 through 3. I feel like every sermon goes back to Genesis 1 through 3 at this point. That's just kind of the way it is. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, in their naked, let's call that in their vulnerable and safe and protected state, in their unashamed state, let's call that transparent, their secure, their joyful state, These dirt creatures, as we learned last week, Adam and Eve, they experienced their desires fulfilled in the loving presence of God. Everything that they could ever need or want, the energy compelled them towards each other, together towards God. With the fall through sin, that all died. Now we are born believing the lie that God didn't really say. God didn't really say. We are born believing the lie that we can do whatever we want, however we want, and we won't die that we can be at root of the lie that we are born believing that we can be our own gods. Now, sin and Satan, as we'll learn about through the entire month of March, this malevolent spiritual enemy of God, convince us that what we actually need, God and selfless love for one another, what we actually need, sin and Satan convince us that that's not at all what we need. Instead, our fleshy desires, complemented by sin and by Satan's lies, drive us to get the very things that we don't need, independence from God, self-defined identities, unchecked behaviors, and our will done instead of his. And then flesh goes after those destructive needs in self-serving, scarcity mindset ways, and oftentimes it ends in violence. What we see in the current war framework out in the world around us is flesh unleashed on flesh, and it's horrific. Our desires in the human experience are out of control, and they are out of our control. No matter how beautifully we are seated here in our seats this morning, there is a rampage of desires that are outside of our control. We cannot keep them in check. Fun little anthropology lesson here this morning. Um, Lane anthropologist Rene Girard, I, was fasc- I went on a deep rabbit hole this week with this guy. He's fascinating. He was informed by his Christian theology. Girard argued that human desire is not self-generated, but instead we desire what others desire. We mimic other people's desires. We get our desires from what we see other people desiring. So Adam and Eve, they originally mimicked or copied the desires of the snake instead of God's desires, and we have been mimicking the deformed, disordered desires of each other ever since. In other words, you and I only want what we want because we saw another person wanting it. Cue up the little two-year-old. He's there contentedly playing with his blocks until he sees his friend pick up the truck, and next thing you know, it's full warfare to get that truck. That two-year-old didn't want that truck until that other two-year-old wanted that truck. That is the story of our lives, a bunch of dirt, fleshy, disordered beings copying one another in our desires, creating chaos in the world, leading all the way to the atrocities that we see in this current moment. Why do we desire certain body images in Western culture? It's because we are mimicking what culture says we should desire. 
Why do we desire fame or, or position or power or certain status? It's because we are mimicking what others who have gone before us have wanted, going all the way back to the snake who wanted these disordered things to deny God and bring death. Now, remember, keep this at the forefront of our minds. Desire is God-given and good. The Spirit creates true desires within us. Therefore, disordered desires are deformities of originally good desires. This is where I want to remind us to be gentle with ourselves. Our disordered desires, if you get underneath the layers, are actually just deformities of really, really good desires. So, for example, the desire for fame in this celebrity culture moment, the desire for fame, all that is underneath the layers is that God-given desire for acceptance, to be looked upon, to be appreciated. That's from God. But our flesh goes about getting that acceptance and that being looked upon in a disordered way, likes on Instagram or body image. The desire to be seen and acknowledged and respected, that is good. We were designed to be applauded by God. But celebrity status is an empty shell of being loved. It's a disordered source of being loved. Is this making sense to everybody? To have position and power, friends, to have position and power is what humanity was designed to do from the very beginning. We should desire power for the use of cultivating creation, creating community. But flesh takes power and disorders it on the lies of the enemy, and then suddenly we find ourselves creating chaos with each other, competing with each other. So desire is good. Disordered desire, if you get underneath the layers of all of your desires, deep down in there, Christian, you will find a good and holy desire that the flesh is disordering and guiding in a wrong way, going after the wrong thing in the wrong ways. The Spirit is always at work in us this morning, right now, in this sermon, to bring our bodies and our minds and our beliefs and our behaviors in line with the truest desires. God, the Holy Spirit, right now is hinting in your deeps, in your unconscious, ways of finding love and value and beauty and significance and joy in, in the presence and in the protection and in the provision of God. What we would say from the biblical metaphor bringing us back to nakedness and unashamedness, that vulnerability and that peace in God's presence. Now, one more step further. I know I ask a lot of you guys on Sunday morning, stay with me here, to further to complicate, to further complicate how convincing the flesh is. To further complicate this, because desire is good, we often experience a spectrum of, of fleshy desires and spirit desires. As with all things in the Bible, there's a lot of nuance here. It's not like that was a flesh desire and that was a Holy Spirit desire. It's always kind of convoluted. We experience what I'm just calling a fog of war, the fog of war in the civil war of spirit and flesh. The fog of war returns, it refers to the uncertainty and the confusion that soldiers face whenever they're in the middle of warfare because combat situations are chaotic and unpredictable and filled with ambiguity. And so it makes it extremely challenging to understand and respond to what's going on on the current battlefield. That's going on in us. So we find ourselves asking, is this desire to trim off a few pounds sourced in the Holy Spirit's desire for me to tend to the health of this physical body, or is it the flesh's desire to be accepted based on my body's appearance? It's both, all mixed up as one. Is this need for significance and fame and likes on Instagram, is that the Spirit directing me to meditate on God's applause of my soul and in the solitude to find his presence satisfying, or is it my flesh's drive to seek glory from humans? It's both. Fog of war. Not easy to figure out. Welcome to Christianity. <laughs> the process of Christian formation, it starts with the obvious. And that's what we're going to get to when we get to Paul's list here in just a moment. But as we mature, as we grow in the likeness of Jesus... The Holy Spirit, like peeling away layers of an onion, will continue to illuminate our deepest motives. He'll continue to highlight what we're really trusting over and over and over. It's a lifelong process of discerning, you know, what I thought was really noble and Holy Spirit-led As I get underneath the layers of that. That's just a little bit fleshy. And you will have epiphanies, I've discovered, further down the road where you're like, I thought that was a fleshy desire. And Lo and behold, that's the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. These wonderful moments of grace and mercy where you were fighting off something that you thought was the flesh, but in fact, it was your father saying, no, I, I would like you to desire that fully and completely, more intensely. 
we will spend our entire Christian life, not three steps on a Sunday morning to getting this figured out, walking away with big smiles on our faces, but 30 years of life, 50 years of life, 60 years of a thousand thousand steps to allowing the spirit to peeling away the layers of fleshy desire mixed with the spirit so that over time, we become more and more habituated or the patterns and beliefs and behaviors of our mind and bodies align with our deepest desires and we're more satisfied. Now we get to these lists. Here in Galatians, Paul starts with the obvious. He starts with just the very clear, what he calls the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. So through Paul's list of the works of the flesh, which we're about to read, we see in detail the disordered desire and how it pollutes or how it corrupts our minds and bodies and souls. Through Paul's very obvious list, which, by the way, isn't exhaustive. It's just an example. It's just an example set of lists. What we see is how the flesh denies dependence on God and denies faith and destroys relationships. As we look through this list, I'm going to ask something of you guys. I'm going to try to do this more often in the middle of sermons. Here's a little bit of a Pastor Dan confession to you. Sometimes you can walk away from giving a talk and just be like, what was the point of that? <laughs> like, everybody's going to go, everybody's going to go get their lunch, and they're all going to talk about how beautiful San Diego is, and, and you spend 45 minutes talking, and it doesn't do anything. I want to invite you to be responsible sermon listeners, if not for my sake, for the sake of your souls. And here's what I mean. As we go through this list, I want to invite you to begin the practice of prayer through sermon listening. Ask the Holy Spirit, as we go through this list, to illuminate, Holy Spirit, this list is for me today. Where, where am I working out of the flesh? Give me wisdom now. Give me discernment. Remember that double knowledge piece. If you want to know God's healing today, he's inviting you to be able to, to hear the diagnosis, to take a longer look at the sickness. Now, some of these things, obviously, in a room like this, in fact, I would say 90% of these things throughout this list that we're about to read, 90% of these things in a room like this, we are not flagrantly, externally behaving this way. But maturing Christians recognize that all of this list we're about to read, we have deep down in our hearts. And the Lord wants to get down into the motives. Man, by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount this fall, Jesus is just like, he wants character. He wants the depths of our being to be just like his. So as we go through this list, as best as you know how in this moment, open your mind and heart and body in a posture of prayer in listening to this sermon. Enter into what I just call loving and humble dialogue with God, with these words from these pages and from this microphone at this point, and let the Spirit reveal the desires that are being disordered in your soul right now. And then simultaneously in that time, if you, if you feel that moment of, oh, okay, that's def yep, that definitely applies to me, Holy Spirit, fill me with your desires in this, in this moment of encounter. Now, here's the key. Don't fear condemnation. Next week, we're going to focus on Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And the challenge for us in listening to a teaching like this in a dialogical way with the Holy Spirit is our tendency will be to hide or to immediately cover in our conscious patterns. We're to bring our whole selves before God to be empowered for correction and for resistance. Our tendency, we have tendencies like this that have been built into us from childhood, is to justify, to try to diminish, well, I'm not as bad as that person, to point the finger at the person next to us, to point the finger out at the world around us, instead of allowing the Spirit to really dig deeply down into the flesh patterns that He wants us to surrender to Him. Resist the temptation to justify and to hide and to camouflage and to diminish. And remember, when you feel, uh, when you feel poked by the, by the Holy Spirit, some of us have an immediate reaction pattern, which is um, self-hatred. We talked about this last week. We do not heal the flesh with harshness with ourselves, by hating ourselves, by religiously beating ourselves down. We surrender. All right. Are we ready for this? Everybody ready? Nod of the head. Okay, do this with me. Take a breath in. We're aware of our emotions and what's in our bodies. We're listening to the Bible, to God's word to us through these super gnarly words. We're about to take a look at Mr. and Mrs. Hyde. Okay, here we go. Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he gives us this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, 
and orgies. I'm just going to work through each of these, and they're segmented off. You can see the way that Paul paired these in particular uh, contextual ways. So you can pair them off in a whole bunch of different ways. This is just the way that I went with. What he does here is he opens, of course, as Paul would. Paul never pulled any punches. Paul opens with the most raw set of desires in the human experience, that of sexual desire. There's nothing more intimate, there's nothing more potent, there's nothing more powerful, and there's also nothing more disordered in the human experience than sexual desire. He uses three very, very broad words in the Greek language, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, translated in our English. Reminding us now this morning, our sexual desires are good and God-given. Our sexual desires are necessary to fulfill God's original command for humans to multiply and fill the earth. And so, because sexual desire is so potent and so powerful and so formative of our souls, God puts very clear constraints on sexual desire and sexual behavior. We talked about this before just recently, actually, but he confines those desires to being satisfied within a covenant relationship between two sexually opposite humans, a man and a woman in lifelong marital union. Now, Paul's three words here describe any. Paul's three words here describe any and all sexual behavior outside of covenant union between a man and a woman in marital union. And he describes any of those behaviors as of the flesh. Now, these three terms, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, they literally, in both ancient Roman and Greek culture and all the way up to modern 2024 San Diegan culture, these words include, they touch on every single possible way that sexuality is disordered within the human experience. These words are so inclusive and so broad in scope that what they force us to realize is that every person in this room this morning is wrestling with sexually disordered desires. Every single one of us equally across the playing field of all corrupted flesh, we are all wrestling with sexually disordered desires. Let me name them all off. Straight, married, single, celibate, sexually active, asexual, polyamorous, pansexual, bisexual, gay. There is no human Whoever exhibits perfectly ordered sexual desire according to the Spirit's desire because every human's flesh is corrupted. So what does that mean for us as the church? I coined a term this week in my head to get my head around this. This last week in my head, I was thinking a lot about this. And I was like, man, you know what that does? It creates in the church what I'm just calling a sexual humility. We should be, of all people, sexually humble, <laughs> something that I think the church has gravely failed at. And if you're here this morning and have been hurt by the church based on sexual discussions, I apologize on behalf of this family and our family. And I want to give to you at least the intention of a community that will be sexually humble. What I mean by that is a sexually humble community says, I personally am aware of my sexual fluidity, the, the range of desire that I experience in any given moment because of the corruption of my own flesh. I personally am aware and comfortable with the fact that Lord is helping me work through my sexual confusion, and I am very, very humbled by the truth that my disorder affects all of my being and all of my sexual desires as much as it does anybody else. Therefore, all Christians, regardless of sexual state or orientation, what we are called to is this sexual humility where we examine our disordered sexual desires on a daily, moment by moment, not in a scared, condemning way, but in a constant awareness, a sober vigilance to say, where is my sexual desire right now leading me towards external behavior that is going to do damage to my soul or the souls of others? But beyond that, the Bible really messes with us because the Bible, and Jesus in particular, takes our externals and takes it right down into our guts. Where are my sexual disordered desires hiding out in my fantasies and in my heart and in my mind? Spirit-empowered sexual obedience in our bodies encompasses our physical bodies. That's very important. But it also encompasses our thoughts and our minds and the looks of our eyes and the emotional entanglements of our hearts. Emotional intimacy leads eventually to sexual intimacy. So a Christian, a Christian, this is just an invitation to all of us. No matter where we find ourselves on the sexual spectrum this morning, fluidity, wherever our desires find themselves landing in this particular given day, a Christian regularly surrenders their bodies 
and their sexual desire to the Spirit of God. And we humbly, without condemnation, without fear, and most importantly, oh, my dearest church, without shame, without shame. Now, shame is this uncontrollable sense that, oh, man, I feel like I need to squeeze down here right now. This is really hitting home for me right now. Me too, and I'm standing in front of all of you unashamed. Why? Because I'm wrestling in my heart with the flesh by the Spirit to believe that there is no condemnation for me. That is the reality of the warfare we're in, the conflict that we're in, and the joyful reality that as I surrender my sexual body to Jesus on a day-in, day-out basis, and I abide by the constraints that he has placed on my sexual body, I believe with all of my heart that that is where flourishing for my soul and flourishing for my community actually erupts from. One final piece on this, 22 years into marriage, I can say anecdotally by experience, this is where sexual flourishing is. It is within this, not only for the married couple, but for singles, for a community, for children, all the way across the board. Paul's next set of words, let's move on. Paul's next set of words deal with our worship or our devotion, or in the language that we're using here for this spring series, looking away. What are we looking towards? What is it that we're looking towards for meaning, for purpose, for protection, for provision? So Paul says that the flesh, the flesh actually kind of like, like blurs our vision and it disorders our devotion to the one true God and instead focuses our practices on idolatry and witchcraft. Let's talk about these very briefly. Idolatry, idolatry. Idolatry connotes any devotion, any looking to something, to trust in it, anything but the true and living God. When we look to anything for protection, provision, significance, love, we are now having our eyes, our worship, our devotion disordered by the flesh. And so our flesh, because we were designed to worship, will worship, but it won't worship God. Remember, it's hostile to God. So in our modern setting, we worship individualism, autonomy, political powers. We worship money. We worship a thousand things. Now, the ancients in the time of Paul, they had their temples filled with the various gods and the various demons and their various demon names. The only thing, we have our temples too. We have our places of worship and devotion too. We just don't have recognized demon names over the top of our temples. Let's call our temples strip clubs, uh, Wall Street broker lounge rooms, political buildings, restaurants, malls. Let's call our temples Amazon.com. <laughs> because of the disordering of the flesh, these places become houses of worship and devotion and trust. Where? What are you trusting in? What am I trusting in right now in this moment? What's the spirit? Encounter the spirit for transformation now. Now, witchcraft. Witchcraft. This is interesting. Witchcraft is the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacia. The word traditionally was used to describe uh, cults and ancient sorcerers and how ancient sorcerers would use particular drugs to manipulate their own psyches and the psyches of their followers to exert control. Here's what we understand to be happening with witchcraft, with pharmakia in the flesh. If our flesh is, and if our spirits will not worship the true and living God, then in the name of becoming our own God, the next logical step is to try to control the world through sorcery, through magic, both the physical and the spiritual worlds, through, through witchcraft and all sorts of super, supernatural means. Now, I know some of you may be sitting there saying like, dude, what is this, Dan? Like Dungeons and Dragons on Sunday morning, this sorcerers and all this, witchcraft, what is happening here? Listen, I observe patterns. This is one of my unique discernment gifts that I've discovered over my 20 years of walking with Jesus and watching patterns in social like broad macro social settings. And what I've been watching is a society that is now succumbing. Uh, it's called the secular narrative, but succumbing really more to the flesh's desires with no restraint at all. And as society continues to succumb to the flesh, what we are seeing is not the rise of atheism and naturalism. We're seeing a repaganizing of culture. We're seeing a reinstitution of various cultic forms of Worship, the reestablishment of cultic practices in the name of manipulating the physical and the spiritual world all as small g gods. Dearest ones, Gen Z, man, I love you guys, but listen to me. <laughs> the resurgence of psychedelics is a mark of a society dabbling in witchcraft, trying to manipulate the internal world, psychological and spiritual, and the external world. The first time I took a, lar a large dose, the first time I took a, it was actually a really large dose of LSD, that night, my, the guy that was my guide, 
he had me journaling because he was very intrigued with what happened in the psyche. And in my journal that night, I wrote, I can create my own universe because I am the universe. That was a declaration of deity in that moment. And I can tell you the euphoria of that moment is still neurologically locked in to this thing in my central nervous system. The Bible does not prohibit the use of drugs like these because they don't work. The Bible prohibits the use of these drugs because they do work potently. Now listen to me. Understand something. When you read through the Bible, there's some crazy visions that we might call hallucinations. But we have a long-standing historical tradition within the Christian community. The mystical and the contemplative traditions of Christian history, they have long taught that a soul must be prepared. The body and the mind and the soul must be strengthened and formed through rigorous training via fasting, silence, extended times of deep solitude, a robust theology of God, so that when that soul is given a view into the beyond, into that which it cannot comprehend with its own physical five senses, that soul has been trained and strengthened to receive that gift as a gift and not try to control it, and it becomes an act of worship. What hallucinogens do, and trust me, I've eaten my fair share of them, what they do is they take the soul by the ankles and they toss it around into a world for which it has not been prepared. And the flesh is convinced, the flesh is convinced that it can control that world. And I am telling you, when they locked me up with drug-induced psychosis, I was out of control of that world. And to this day, 20 plus years later, I still find myself terrified that I am going to lose control of what I did to my brain back then. The next words in Paul's list, they are relationally devastating. It's quite a large block there, the works of the flesh. Remember, the flesh turns desire inward, and it makes itself, it, it makes desire selfish and self-serving. So hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. We're almost done here. This list, this little block here, it reveals what goes on unchecked in all of our hearts. Social convention requires that most of us are polite to each other, but the more intimate the relationship, the less polite we are to each other. You guys ever noticed that? Like we're super rude to the people that we love the most and are closest to. This list shines light on the hidden dark moment when you're scrolling through Instagram and then you see that picture or she and he got the body, got the gift, got the job that you wanted. You're just like, Ugh. that That's flesh. That's flesh. This flesh illuminates that moment where you have that impatient outburst with a spouse or a friend or a kid during a heated moment. It warns, it, this, this list warns that the ambition that you say is your pursuit for success that's keeping you up at night, that's not God. That's not God. This list shows us, I'm going to just continue to get out in front of 2024, that this political season could bring the splintering of communities of relationship in this church. The flesh wants to faction. Factions. The flesh wants to divide off and splinter, and it will focus on and use any tool necessary. And this political season is going to be rife with opportunity for us to take what's hidden in our hearts if we're not careful and just split asunder what God has given us. And the relational destruction of the disordered flesh is literally everywhere around us. Now, the final set of words, let's just move on here. The final set of words that Paul gives us is uh, drunkenness and orgies. And what Paul is describing here is what an entire society does when the flesh rules, okay? So you move from a constrained society with values that were rooted in Christianity, at least here in the West, and what we're seeing is the resurgence of idolatry, repaganization, witchcraft, hallucinogenic use, other drug use, all sorts of stuff in the names of control. Well, by the time where this all ends is just one gigantic gnarly frat party, okay? That's where this goes. There's not much that needs to be said about drunkenness. I would assume that most of us are aware of what Paul means by that. The flesh loves to be filled with anything that gives it a false sense of euphoria, a false sense of confidence, and a false sense of enhanced social skills. Everything that alcohol does. Until you wake up the next morning and somebody tells you, your social skills, they weren't on point last night. <laughs> now, orgies, orgies is an unfortunate translation, honestly. Um, oddly enough, uh, usually the NIV translators, they usually kind of blush whenever the Bible uses these kind of words and they try to tone them down. For some reason, they went full on in this one and, and it's a little bit off. Um, orgies is probably a little bit too sexual for what Paul's word was in the mind of his reader. It's more in the vein of these, mass, where, where our flesh goes as a social 
entity is it just leads us to these unchecked, uncontrollable parties, revelry. It, it's, it's, sex isn't the primary focus, but I can tell you that like Mardi Gras, there's a lot of focus on sex at Mardi Gras. How many of you guys watched the national championship this year, the NCAA football championship? Am I the only sports guy? Okay, good. Did you guys, well, never mind. There was a flash on live TV that ESPN had to, ESPN had to apologize for because where society goes is to a drunken, wild party and everybody just wants to get naked. That's what this word, that's what this word is. Now, sober, sober moment, sober moment, we're almost done. Paul says, I warn you, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These patterns, like Hyde, begin to take over. And it's not that God's like, oop, you're at Mardi Gras, boom, you're out of heaven. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is God's like, you're going to so fall in love with Mardi Gras that you would never want to be with me. That's what happens you're going to fall so in love with your envy and your selfish ambition that you would never want to serve humbly before me. You're going to fall so in love with your definition of your disordered sexual desire that you would never submit your body to me. You would never want to because you cannot any longer believe that flourishing is this way. Does that make sense, friends? That's why we, he gives us the noble and terrifying responsibility to resist and as we'll see next week, to counterform by practices this new way of life. So we've seen the dark. The spirit has been shining light in this encounter, in this transformation encounter. And now this is where I want us to go as we wrap this up. For the sake of listening, for the sake of transformation. This is what I have to do whenever I read through a list like this, because I am so self-condemning. I'll read through a list like this. I'm just like, I'm every single one of them. I am, you're right, God, I don't want heaven. And, <laughs> and the Lord has to just come and like, I have to speak to myself. I have to speak the words of truth to myself. I would invite you to just read these, read these thoughts that I would have. This is what I literally told myself this week as I was meditating and praying through this passage for you guys. I had to just stop in the middle of my sermon prep, and I would just say this. I am loved. In my corruption, I am utterly loved. And then I, being, being who I am, I have to sit there and I have to be like, okay, I sense self-hatred in my body right now. I sense repulsion. I sense anger that I can't get this right. I sense, and then I would just say, Father, I encounter you in love. But I don't feel loved. That's right. I don't feel loved. Objectively, I am loved, but subjectively, I'm not experiencing that right now, so I'm just going to submit to that. There is nothing that God is not aware of in me right now that he's not transforming at this moment. That's the truth. Whatever he spoke to you about, that is what's being transformed. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Right now, in this moment, in this sermon, in, right here for me, in this teaching, I turn from my flesh to the Spirit as best as I know how in an open posture of surrender. And now listen to Paul's second list. This is where we're going next week, so come back for part two, please. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is who you truly are right now. As a Christian, this is who you are. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are fully forgiven, washed and cleansed and made totally pure within and without by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is who we are. We are loved and loving beings. Our joy right now in our deeps is found in God's presence, God's protection, God's purposes. It's what he has given us. We are despite, dearest friend, despite our anxiety, despite the level of worry and strife that we exhibit through this past week and will probably fall into the patterns of this coming week, we actually in our deeps are a non-anxious presence. We live our days in peace that surpasses understanding we, despite our envious outbursts and selfish rage and ambition, we actually in our deeps are patient and gentle and kind and faithful to the end and self-controlled. And I hear you. I hear my own narratives. But Dan, I am not. I am not any of those. I have striven. I have strived. I have not made it. Me too. That's why day by day we surrender because we are 
and we are becoming. It's emerging out of these processes of prayer and practice, not even by our own effort. Our effort is to respond, to be formed by the Spirit, and to be loved with our whole self, all the brokenness, be utterly, unconditionally accepted and loved, and that is what brings transformation. Next week, Faith and practices will show us how, how this new life is trained and it begins to resist and overcome the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit emerges out of the soils of prayer. For today, as we come to communion, come to communion in loving dialogue with God. And John, you guys can, John and Beth, you guys can come on up. Bring whatever God has spoken to you in this teaching. It's gone a little bit long today, but whatever he's, whatever he's spoken to, where, maybe investigate this in this time of communion. Where are you resisting? Where do you sense resistance this morning in your body? Bring that to God in surrender. Where are you resonating? Bring that to God in surrender. And then as we take communion and we bring our fears and our shame and our hopes and our disappointments and our mess-ups and our successes, let's just be with Jesus here by faith in the presence of God with his reminder of his love for us and what he did for us, Jesus Christ took on human flesh to absorb, to absorb the shame and the, and the punishment and the consequences that we deserved in our bodies. And he did this so that our bodies could be conduits through which we experience love and we love others. Be loved, trust, surrender. Father, as we sing now to you and prepare for communion, open our souls in a divine encounter of transformation. God, where we have, uh, where we've been spoken to, may we, with just a gentleness and a kindness to ourselves, confess. Not in fear, not in condemnation, but just confess. So here with my family this morning, I'll lead the way. I, I, I confess envy. I'm envious, Lord. I'm envious. I think that what I should have, I don't have, and what others have, I should have. And it makes me unthankful for the millions of gifts you've given me. I'm so sorry. Lord, my sexual desires are disordered. My tendency to want to control, I may not be using hallucinogens anymore, but man, do I try to bend the world to my will. I use, sometimes I feel like I use prayer or sorcery. If I just pray the right way in Jesus' name, I'll get my will into the world. It's just... I'm sorry, Father. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you see that. I'm sorry for impatient outbursts with my beautiful children. Please bind any wounds and balm the souls. And now you, each of you, here's John's just strumming on the guitar. Just quietly confess your sins to Jesus Christ. And then we'll sing.